Welcome to the history of networking, where we drag all the skeletons out of the wiring closet and ponder the ghosts of protocols past. Today we are talking to John Crowcroft about the history of satellite communications and performance measurement. So grab a pile of cookies, settle in, and listen as we meld with the finest minds in networking. Well, good morning, Donald. I know it's morning where you are because you're in the same place I am. And good afternoon, John. I think it's afternoon for you, right? Because you are yep. in the UK, Scotland, someplace like that. <laughs> Scotland is still in the UK. Yeah, well, I know. Well, <laughs> not for lack of trying, <laughs> from what I understand. <laughs> something, something about Braveheart. <laughs> <laughs> continues to come to mind in that realm. So, John, why don't we start right at the beginning and just like, how did you get into networking and just a little bit of the stuff that you've worked on over the years? And uh, Donald and I will in interject with dumb questions from time to time. <laughs> sure. Uh, okay, so, yeah, so I was a naive young uh, physics graduate uh, and uh, I got a job programming on a deck 10 uh, in the 70s. Uh, which was just a pretty conventional thing in London. And we were uh, just running a, a, a system for a college department. Um, we had about 300 users, and they were connected by some weird that, that stuff. And then um, I decided I need to get a qualification for what I was working on. So physics was not a qualification for programming in, <laughs> in Bliss and Algol 60 and Fortran and so on. Actually, it is a qualification for programming in Fortran. But, um, okay, so... So I, I moved to a master's program at UCL, University College London, and I did not know this, but uh, they were the first people on the internet outside America, um, along with some other folks in uh, Germany and Norway and Italy. And so when I was doing the master's, um, some guys came up to me and said, hey, we hear you can program, which was news to me. Um, but they, um, they had this, uh, this uh, project, which was funded by, by ARPA at the time, or DARPA as we now call them, um, which connected uh, these folks in, uh, in Knutje, which is a lab in Italy, a radio lab, and in the Norwegian um, Telecom Association, in, in NTA, which is part of, uh, uh, um, in Oslo, is part of, but connected with the university there as well. And, um, and then a, a research lab in Germany. And then the other end of the network was uh, actually a geostationary satellite was part of Intelsat for it. Uh, um, and then the other, the, the other end of the downlink from there was in the um, US. And so that was the SatNet. And it was the Atlantic Packet Satellite Network. And we had all of uh, 128 kilobits a second shared for everyone from the it's Italians, you know, uh, Germans, Norwegians, and English, uh, or British, I guess. Um, and luckily, we only had about five computers. Uh, and then the other end was basically uh, connected to the OpenNet. And, um, and the, the year I just started working on this was when we just turned on TCP IP. So just before that, it was a thing called NCP, which was a network control program. And we were just switching over to TCP IP. And I finished my master's, and uh, uh, somebody said, here, you can work and be paid to do this thing. And it's programming, measuring this network. And so we had a distributed measurement project, which was coordinated uh, with the partner in the US was uh, BBN. So the BBN labs uh, in, um, I guess, Fresh Pond, just outside the Cambridge Mass. And, um, 
Uh, and we used to reprogram the satellite network, and we had these things called satellite imps, and then uh, they connected IP routers, or routers if you must call them that, um, and, uh, and then we would measure the performance over this thing of various different protocols as we changed the underlying actually media access protocol. So there were different ways of using the satellite shared channel. This is a bit like all the thousands of protocols people went through in wireless networking until they ended up with Wi-Fi. Um, they went through all these different protocols on satellite. And it's different because geostationary satellite is it's a 0.7 seconds round trip time at the speed of light because it's a long way up and down and up and down again. So, and then, um, so I was involved in this and I was doing my PhD. Uh, signed up to do a PhD while being paid, which is a very good thing. I recommend if you have to do a PhD, then organize it so you get paid. Um, and um, and I used to go to, used to come to the US a lot to go to things like uh, DARPA PI meetings. And meetings were at, uh, you know, BBN uh, or MIT or UCLA or Berkeley or Stanford or wherever there were, uh, you know, a handy set of people doing network measurement. And this is a really good time because from, Basically, the beginning from 1980 till about 88 was when we were actually, the last time we were, we were able to globally change all the protocols in the internet. <laughs> and so, uh, you know, so people I, I was working with would show up in some of the meetings would be, would be you know, Bob Braden um, from ISI or Van Jacobson from LPL um, and, uh, or Dave Clark from MIT. And all these people were literally saying, well, we could change the RTT estimation uh, algorithm in TCP, or we could change the, the, you know, the send window algorithm and end up with congestion control, uh, or we could add IP multicast. Um, so, uh, and so, so my, my kind of uh, uh, eight years of fun uh, ended in uh, about 1988 when the SITCOM conference happened at Stanford, and it's a really kind of watershed point. It's really worth looking through the proceedings of that conference because uh, I had a paper there, but that's not the important one. Um, the, what's really cool is in that conference, Dave Clark had a paper, which is a kind of retrospective on the design principles of the internet. Uh, Van Jacobson had the paper, which is the TCP congestion control paper, which is probably that one of the highest cited papers in, in networking history. Uh, and it's very important because he kind of avoided the network collapsing in a heap because of uh, uh, excess demand and, and congestion collapse. Uh, and then Steve Dering had a paper uh, on multicast, which is pretty cool. Radia Palmer had a paper on scalable um, routing, which actually is what people use for uh, uh, bridging routing in uh, layer two in a lot of data centers. It's still, you know, the ideas from that one conference show up everywhere in networking. So it's kind of an interesting point. So I was really, really lucky to be working in, in UCL in a group that had the research funding to to work on this stuff at kind of the peak transition time uh, for a lot of a lot of internet stuff, and then um, I guess the tail end of that kind of ATA, we were trying to figure out what was about to happen, which was the uh, U.S. government was saying, well, any day now we're going to have to turn off uh, this subsidy you get through this network, and you're going to have to get it funded, you know, through business. And so we knew 92 was a very interesting next day in networking history for me because that's when NSF stopped funding a backbone for everyone. And that included international connectivity uh, for kind of just day-to-day -day networking. And not only did that mean we had to kind of think through how commercial ISPs were coming to existence, but also 
we had to make uh, an early version of BGP work, which was EGP, uh, which I kind of had some help uh, uh, deploying. Um, I, I, I kind of did a bit of kind of running that in a few places and debugging and so on. And then, of course, some, some crazy guy in, uh, uh, in Switzerland devised this kind of useful way of using the internet, which we hadn't thought of until then, which is the World Wide Web, um, which sort of made things, you know, instead of having these mystic incantations with uh, having to know IP addresses and, uh, 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 using FTP commands and other strange stuff, or even some of the kind of intercept things like, um, uh, I guess, Wayers and, and Archie and so on, then suddenly this kind of web browser came along and web servers. And so that became a kind of big watershed point that, that you could, I could talk to people about the internet at parties and they didn't look at me like I was some completely crazy person. <laughs> They'd actually seen something where actually you could use that, right? So, so I was, I was kind of lucky in my you know, time, early time in, in, in being involved. Uh, cool, cool. So, um, you talked a little bit about the transition from EBGP to uh, EGP to BGP. <laughs> so, was that a flag day? I mean, a lot of these things are flag days, which are interesting to people because, like you said, we don't really have flag days any longer. They're they're very like you just you don't you can't really do flag days right so yeah well you, you probably do flag days but on a much smaller scale though right yeah much like much smaller scale right right um, yeah and, and I think I think you know even even uh, a, a single data center now is you know can be a, a million cores and so it could be you know six tops across internally and so you typically run three versions of things uh and you know you 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 you, you grandfather out something as you bring in a new thing but you need to be able to roll back and yeah i i actually i don't recall the exact details of the first bgp rollout so that's going back too far but i think it must have been a, a must have been still a flag day at that point um just about because the number of as's you'd be looking at would be you know a small number i mean like handful uh, and that's the level you're operating at is sort of to be able to debug that. Um, of course, we know much later that BGP uh, is itself a bit of a nightmare in terms of debugging uh, inherently because of information hiding that it does. And there are business reasons why it does that, but it, it does lead to being a really interesting distributed system problem, uh, which you know, many things in the internet are now uh, new kinds of problems of scale over the last last 20 years have been just uh, not just numbers of devices, but the fact you cannot possibly measure every point and have a consistent view of what's going on anymore. So when I started and I mentioned the SatNet, although it was you know 0.7 seconds across, you know it was literally I'm going to use the scientific measurement, you know, 35,000 kilometers up to the satellite. Um, I don't know what that is in miles, but you know something similar. Um, the um, the, the, the point is that we had a single viewpoint, which is the radio channel. And so we could measure that on the ground at the earth stations. And you could then get a consistent clock from that because any packet sent by, down by the satellite would be seen and that would give you a clock. Uh, so you could do distributed measurement on that, which is kind of what I, I started out doing. And we had a bunch of, you know, of, of viewpoints and we were looking at how well the map protocols were, how well IP routing uh, interacted, how well TCP worked actually it was interesting because the round trip time was, you know, an underlying round trip time that big messed with the early PTP uh, retransmit timer estimators. And, and, and in fact, weirdly, literally today, I was looking at a paper we're working on in IoT where we're looking at radios that are used by long range um, IoT, uh, you know, things like telemetry, so LoRaWAN, 
um, which has a bimodal round trip time. And this causes problems for TCP retransmit a timer estimation. So I, I literally, I, had to, I went back and looked at things I was working on in 1984, 85, and in you know, 2019, we hit the same problem again. So this is kind of, kind of interesting that these problems come around. Um, but, but again, in, a, you know, in the, today's world in IoT, you have a, a long-range uh, LoRaWAN network, um, you're, you're a few hundred of thousand devices in the radio range, and with the sat satellite network, we have you know, uh, a few tens of, uh, of uplinks. Um, and so you could, you could potentially measure it, whereas when you get into you know, the late 80s, early 90s, the transition was suddenly into large numbers of event systems run by many people. That suddenly becomes the nightmare. Um, makes it interesting as well, and it makes all the business implications, security and privacy, and change everyone's behavior become all kinds of uh, pressures on how you can do things. Right, and I think that's that's a function of abstraction and the way we abstract things. And you know, abstraction is a good thing because it abstracts things, right? It makes it where you can actually build larger scale. But at the same time, abstraction hides things, which means it hides this measurement capability. It hides all the stuff you would normally be able to do, which makes everything much harder, much harder to troubleshoot and to get your head around in one big piece. So. Um, Let's talk about multicast a little bit, perhaps. That that's an interesting sure. topic, and I think I think you talked a little bit about that, particularly in terms of IoT and stuff like that. So, where is where? What's your experience with multicast? I mean, what have you seen happen there in the yeah world? yeah? Well, we were yeah we were talking before we kicked off a, that that was an interesting topic. I actually had a really cool uh, couple of graduate students uh, who uh, who worked on this, and one guy was uh, Tony Bellardi who cooked up a. Trying to, we were trying to simplify what was going on with multicast very early on, and we came up with a thing called core-based trees, where you had a single rendezvous point, and that turned into one of the modes of PIM, which is kind of one of the. Uh, but the, the problem with PIM is it kind of ended up with multiple modes. So you had any source multicast, single source multicast, you know, source specific, um, and you had this switch between. Uh, uh, the reverse path, uh, you know, the, the switch between going via rendezvous point to reverse path forwarding, and all that complexity um, was something we could not figure out how to make it scale. And then um, uh, Mark Handy was the other guy who came along and, and actually worked on PIM, trying to get it cleaner. Actually, another guy was one of my students, actually did a lot of work on this in Cisco, was uh, Isidor Kuvalas, did a lot of work in practically trying to get working with Dino Farinacci and the other guys working on this, trying to trying to get in practice deployed in a way that would work. Because we had we had demands, you know, we had people that wanted to do live streaming, you know, live content for video and audio, TV companies, radio companies, and they wanted it to scale. They didn't want to have to send you know ten thousand copies or a hundred million copies of the same packet of video from the source. And so even for the single source case, there's a, you know, even in a single um, ISP in a single uh, provider back, backbone there was demand for this. Um, seems like uh, there's still some use out there of that kind. I know Telefonica and AT&T and uh, some other ISPs were using this as one of their ways of internally distributing multicast. But, but the problem we had was just exactly the sort of thing you're saying. We got the raw abstraction early on. We got an abstraction and we essentially borrowed from making everything look an Ethernet. And this, this, this comes from Steve Dering and his advisor, Dave Sheraton at Stanford, who came very much from the Xerox part world of, let's make everything look like an Ethernet and scale the, the whole internet to be Ethernet-like. And um, there's, a lot of, there's a lot to be said in some ways of that being a beautiful abstraction, 
but then you then you know when when the when you when the, the um, you know when you actually try and put that out there, you discover you encounter all these other pressures, which one of the one of which would be business models that you have no idea how an ISP should forward your multicast to another ISP which has you know 100 million recipients for your video. Uh, you know how do you do a peering arrangement? What does that look like? You know, no idea. Well, what happens when you get a, a denial of service attack from some random person injecting multicast from somewhere you didn't expect, um, which actually happened really early on. It was a, I have a, a great, uh, somebody wrote a blog about this recently, and there was a, a Rolling Stones concert, which was live cast on, on the Embo, a sort of virtual overlay multicast. And then some guys at Xerox Park had a band um, which is called Severe Tire Damage, which is a great name for a California band. And, and they literally broadcast on the same group, they multicast on the same group, live audio and audio, they playing. And there's all these people watching the Rolling Stones, you know, who kind of were using the kind of multicast receiver tools for audio and video. And, and actually a big, a big TV company, Sky TV, covered it, and they rebroadcast it into their TV network. And then suddenly up comes this, you know, this, this nobody's heard of group, you know, um, uh, <laughs> And of course, you can choose who you, you receive from, so you could filter it out in a way, but it was kind of very early lesson and something going wrong here. You know, it was probably not the right model. You know, you really don't want the, you know, the, the world soccer final or whatever it happens to be to suddenly have some random other team from some small high school somewhere, you know, standing their game on the same stream. It, it's kind of... Um, is kind of tricky. So there are a number of number of interesting things with, with multicast, but I think my favorite was the bug that hit when we, we were in the middle of a, a workshop at Stanford, and I'm trying to think which year this was, but there was some recursive join bug in PIM where that kind of join messages to RPs got recirculated, and we basically had looping multicast traffic, and the only way of getting rid of it was to literally shut down every PIM router on the internet, <laughs> and then, you know, upgrade. And this is, this is another indication there's something kind of bad here. Of course, we've had similar problems with BGP, right? I mean, BGP has gone through the same kind of scale problem where you hide information and somebody, you know, somebody claims to be the best way to get to YouTube, not because they're trying to undermine YouTube, because they're trying to black hole YouTube for their own country, because they're worried about the influence on their citizens or whatever. And then everyone else believes them. And then you black hole YouTube for a while until everyone works out, uh, oh, wait, we need to filter what we learn from other people. So, you know, those are lessons that are global ways of managing scale here, which, you know, which are were not early ones in the internet. They were kind of, the, I guess, the ones that showed up in the 90s when we really had to you know, face the real world. That's kind of cool. So I, I, see, I see that you did some work on SATCOM around rural broadband. So talk to us a little bit about that. Like, what is that about? Um, and how did that come about? So, uh, yeah, so actually, yeah, this goes, this goes to uh, back to Scotland. Um, so the most remote parts of the UK, which, you know, the UK is, doesn't have a lot of really remote stuff compared with some parts of North America. But actually, the Western Highland Lines of Scotland are pretty remote, and they're fairly rugged territory. And um, and so, putting uh, copper phone lines was not a priority 100 years ago, and putting fibre has not been a priority ever. Um, and uh, microwave towers probably uh, get troubled by the mountains in the way. Um, it's okay when you want to get from the mainland to the islands, but 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 then you have to get to those. So so SATCOM turns out to be a pretty satellites uh, turn out to be a pretty cost-effective way of getting capacity 
uh, into small villages in rural areas. So actually, we didn't, I didn't really have any sort of technical input to this beyond trying to get people to remember what we'd done in the 80s. And so, so rural broadband was really um, a much later thing. It was kind of when broadband was taking off and people really started to depend on the internet, you know, for banking or, or ordering stuff on Amazon. So we're talking, you know, in the 2000s now, um, then people were uh, retiring to these areas. You know, they, they, they'd leave the big city and go and live in a beautiful countryside in the middle of nowhere. And then they would be used to be able to do these things on the internet. And they'd say, well, why can't I get my internet? And we'd say, well, we can't build you a fiber, you know, 800 miles from London to Sky, it's not going to happen. Um, but how about the satellite? And then the satellites have a, have a lot of capacity. Um, it's, it's, it's got kind of slightly unusual demands on your know, satellite capacity is you know, typically had been used for, uh, uh, for broadcast TV and then gradually that, those transponders came free um, uh, or there was more capacity on them. And so so it, it looked like that was a way to do delivery. And then, then, then we got burned because a lot of the devices people used to access the internet were just out of the box, uh, you know, desktops and laptops uh, running typically Windows. Um, and it's not Microsoft's fault, but I mean, every, Linux would have been the same, uh, OS X would have been the same, but you know, what most people use. And the things like round two time estimators were just not, uh, not kitted, you know, they weren't instrumented to deal with this delay. So, and, and actually lost, you know, you get, you get um, a big rainstorm, you get a lightning storm, and you get a lot of packet loss on those long, you know, that long delay radio links. So quite a short spark from, from lightning or, or a lot of rain will, will give a lot of interference. And so then you end up with, um, you know, reduced capacity and the whole system uh, should have been designed around what would a packet network look like. You probably want forward error correction on the, the lower layer uh, so that you get, you don't get hurt so badly by that. And then you want a good uh, round shift time estimate and you probably want selective acknowledgement TCP. And then, you know, a whole bunch of things with, which we kind of had evolved but they were kind of running in high-end systems in data centers but not in you know the domestic products that people bought um so um so i guess my my input in in the uk was just to you know was just to keep telling people okay there are these results if you keep saying to the people providing the boxes you know you can do this there are other tricks you could do as well you can put proxies in you know if they the first off, uh device in the house or in the village uh, runs a proxy, it can implement more sophisticated TCPs and then do caching and then you can obviously, you know, get big gains from that. So that's kind of something we've, we've learned already from uh, fixed internet access, you know, conventional internet access, where we've done a lot of caching because of the cost of bandwidth in the early days and then that became less necessary for people with high bandwidth, but it kind of came along again for those, those environments. Um, and, and early cellular data access as well. So, so yeah, that was kind of really very practical stuff. I mean, you know, it was also part of my recent, illustrious research career. This was, we did this engineering stuff in the 80s, and oh, look, it's become useful again. Um, you know, so a bit like I was saying with, you know, looking at this IoT and LoRaWAN with you know, multimodal round trip times in the link mode, then you have to change TCP again. So, so and, and quite often there's a bunch of people who come out of college and they kind of go, oh, I know how to do this. And you go, well, actually, you probably don't realize that we did also know how to do that 20 or 30 years before. Um, and, and we even have code you could look at. You, know, so you could just use that again. <laughs> Yeah, so RFC 1925, Rule 11. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Every, everything that's ever been invented will be invented again and called something different. <laughs> so, um, I, I think there's a corollary there, too, is the non-invented here where, like, you someone wrote the program and people don't want to read what someone wrote. They want to do it themselves. 
I mean, that's, I see that all the time. Why, why use what someone else wrote when I can write it myself? Yeah, I mean, that's an interesting, an interesting um, thing with the internet. I was used to teaching, um, I guess pretty much everyone would have been teaching practical stuff with TCPIP with Rich Stevens books and TCPIP Illustrated. And this was really great because, you know, volume two was like a walkthrough of the code from, from Berkeley Unix. And, and of course, now people forget that and they don't go look at that, partly because the, the common code base is normally for the kind of people still hacking C code, might be Linux kernel stuff, not BSD. So that, that, that's at least fair enough. That will give them one reason. But, but also because they were, yeah, it's not embedded here. They want to write their own or they prefer to write it in, in Rust or, 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 you know, or some other, whatever your latest language is, which, which, which they're good reasons for. You know, you can get rid of some of the, the security problems. So I'm, I'm, I'm fine with that. But on the other hand, I'd also say, you know, this code works at a very wide range of performance scales. So if, you know, if it is available, it's really worth familiarizing yourself with it if you throw it away and then rewrite. I think that's kind of how we're um, teaching some project students literally this year, writing some peer-to-peer -peer stuff and they're redoing some DHTs. And I said, well, you know, you probably want to go look at Kademlia because actually it's been around a while, but it's pretty solid. And, you know, the code's the decent code out there. And I don't mind if you rewrite it completely, but if you look at what they did and it works, then, you know, then you're, you're starting from a, a sound, at least we know there's a sound basis. And then if it's rewritten, once you use rewriting Kademlia in Rust, which seems like a pretty neat idea. Um, and they, they were, the project does something else after that. But, you know, they're looking at old code. So, yeah, I, I see this not invented here thing. You know, I agree that's all the time. So, so an interesting thing I noticed is you're involved in both the IEEE from an early time and the IETF from an early time. And it's kind of unusual to for people to be involved in both. I mean, I'm an ITFer, so you know, I've been involved in ITF for a long time. But you don't find a lot of people who are both ITFers and IEEEers um, for you know over a number of years. So could you like contrast a little bit of the history of those two? Like if you've been involved that long in both of them, like what 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 would you say about those two is, is kind of interesting in the way they interact or in anything along those lines? Um, yeah, okay, they are really different, obviously. Um, I, I'm, I'm, I'm certainly more involved in ITF than, and then IEEE. Uh, the IEEE stuff, typically you had to have, if, if my job, my day job is, you know, as an academic researcher, so for IEEE, somebody has to, you know, be a paid up member from some, you know, company, and I got involved through a number of different companies, like, let's say, Intel or whoever, um, uh, and... Uh, and we would just be doing some collaborative research with them, measuring something that they then think should be part of the, the, the new standard there. Uh, quite a lot of this was Desmo Wi-Fi deployment. I remember like 15 plus years ago, 20 years ago maybe. Um, that was quite important to get the low levels right. So they actually had a good story. And they wanted, they actually, have, you know, and suddenly they have some good processes. They wanted to have independent engineers actually say, you know, here's some graphs of performance. And this new algorithm, these guys are proposing, they're not just saying it because they're Intel or they're, you know, whoever. They're, they really actually have, these other people have measured it. Um, so, but, but, it, but it is a much more closed shop and closed, you know, environment. And, you know, the, I always like the ITF. I, I haven't been to a lot of ITFs in the last 20 years. I used to go all of the time until 2000. And I just got uh, too burned out by, by flying, actually, to be honest. Uh, and I kind of done a couple of recent ones because I've been doing this IoT protocol stuff with uh, head of compression, VCAX co-op, 
whatever TCP um, profiles from for low 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 energy um, radios, um, and that that's that's nice because that environment is like the old days, very open. You show up, people listen to you because you're talking engineering sense. They're polite if you're talking rubbish, you know, and they say you're talking rubbish, you know, that's wrong and that's good because then you learn as well. You come away from a meeting and you go, wow, that's great. So people are mostly polite. Um, uh, so that that in the working groups, I've you know, I've I've seen that 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 environment's really nice and that trip is much much more formal. You know, the whole the whole process much more. Um, uh, a kind of for industry forum type setup. The same with three uh, GPP and cellular folks. You know, so it's another that's another world where we've had a few inputs to them from some of my research uh, groups, but um, uh, kind of arm's length. You know, uh, we we don't go along without somebody kind of putting their arm around us and introducing us as really here's our okay friends who are going to tell you about their performance results that their their poor PhD spent the last three years getting. <laughs> so we're working on um, working on a bunch of things with uh, device to device and you know direct Wi-Fi and those things because I'm a kind of I'm a kind of radical. I think you know we should get rid of providers and networks of every kind. And so we want to have you know ad hoc multi-hop radio networks for cellular and peer-to-peer Wi-Fi and ad hoc content providers full on peer-to-peer and all those things. So we keep trying, you know, and people keep re-centralizing everything we do. Um, uh, but you know that that's just um, uh, and, and you know, we actually got some headway with uh, with uh, Qualcomm. Actually, uh, uh, were, were were they sponsored students here uh, because they wanted us to, to do open, independent research about how some of those things might work in in um, in device to device. So combining direct. Uh, actually, this was um, in, in LTE and Wi-Fi combined. So, you, so a lot of the time nowadays, you have software radios, and you want to uh, build a collection of protocols that use similar techniques so that the higher levels are shared. Uh, and the only thing that changes is you know, right at the very bottom is the transceiver level stuff. And so we this was a few years ago, um, but that was that was it was you know it was quite it was quite interesting. What what I think a lot of people think of is a quite opaque organization like the IEEE, and not really. It's just the there's a level of um, tech that you need to be up to, not not technical ability, but you have to be somebody who's going to make a billion of these devices, because uh, that's the kind of organisation that they're you know that they're representing in in, in the agreements there. Uh, whereas the ITF, you know, you might be from that, but you might also be one person who is the best person at making I don't know quantum resistant crypto algorithms and you could be just one person that you've implemented it and then you need a working group and you go do that and, and everyone goes, oh wow, that's really useful. Uh, so you know, the, the, a lot of ITF stuff can happen because smart software people can, can get a lot of leverage. Um, yeah. That makes a difference. Yeah, interesting. So, you know, something you said there about centralization and decentralization and you're a radical decentralizationist. Um, that seems to be a historical element of the internet, doesn't it? Where there is like there is there are like movements to decentralize, followed by strong centralization movements. Uh, is that something you've seen over the last you know thirty to forty years? It's something I think I've seen over the last thirty years on a regular basis. It seems to be coming out in the DNS world right now, very strongly. But uh, yeah. No, absolutely. Uh, yeah, I mean, I, I was looking at um, um, this is guy Ben Laurie who does the CA transparency stuff, which was an attempt to kind of get a bit more decentralization into the DNS, uh, you know, certificate authority stuff. But but we see this in lots of application spaces that centralization 
in some cases makes the management operation simpler. And so centralizing ISP is, you know, having you know, some scarce resource, which is people who have a debug BGP or debug multicast or debug even OSPF or whatever, you know, is really useful. But there aren't so many of those people. So a little bit of centralization can help. Um, on the And centralizing, you know, uh, data centers and cloud uh, services clearly scaled out something super fast. Um, some of my colleagues in my current job were responsible for the Zen hypervisor, which was part of what a lot of people used 15 plus years ago in virtualization cloud. And um, we, we have a lot of engagement with Docker, which is you know used by a lot of people in Azure and other cloud services containers. And this stuff is um, it's 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 clearly makes life really easy if you want to build a really simple thing. You know, you just want to sell tickets for some big rock festival with a quarter of a million people. And you don't want to build a server. You know, you just want to put something out there. And the centralization kind of comes around and helps. But then you then you get the social uh, media platforms that when centralization happens, they can become really problematic in terms of uh, ownership of content and filtering and all the problems we know about, and this is like not my space, but you know, there are lots of good people who write about this, like Sharon Lanier and so on, and, and they're not wrong. Um, so, um, so I'm, I'm kind of working at the moment with some guys who have a decentralized mess, secure message platform. Um, I'm pretty, I'm, I'm kind of looking at uh, some colleagues of mine who wrote a paper that's in the Internet Measurement Conference this year, just happened on uh, Mastodon, where which is one of the main decentralized social media platforms been pretty successful in the last year or two. And, and yeah, when they measured it, it looks like it's re-centralizing again. You know, a lot of the nodes are kind of, you know, instead of people running their own pods everywhere, it's getting more centralized. So so there's, yeah, you're absolutely right. This is like a cycle that goes around. And when things get sufficiently bad with the centralized system, and somebody drives it back to decentralize. And then when somebody figures out how to make that new service work, where they get some benefits from centralization, then it goes back to that, and then you hit the new, the new bad side of that. And so, it's, I don't know. I don't know if there's a, a way to finish this. You know, what, I mean, what, is there a way out of that cycle, or is it just actually the right thing? You know, the right process. It's sort of an evolutionary cycle that should happen. Yeah, interesting. And I noticed that a lot of your work in the internet world has been around measurement. You talk about measurement a good bit. So how would you say measurements changed from the days like when you first started as a grad student um, working on this stuff or as a master's student? Like, what, what is it about in the world today that you would say is interesting about measurement or how has that changed over the life that you've seen in the internet? Yeah, that's a great question. Um, Right. I think we've got a lot more professional about measurement. When I look at what people do, you know, we, we, we really have some, uh, not my own work, but I have colleagues or people I know, uh, respect around the world who do super precise measurement. And they start to look like the physicists, you know, measuring the speed of light to you know, 10 decimal places or, you know, the size of uh, one atom or how far away, how many exoplanets are in the sky or whatever. Um, so there's some pretty impressive stuff with, you know, really precision measurement, but also really clever statistical techniques to take multiple measurement viewpoints and figure out what's going on. It kind of goes back to what we were talking about right at the beginning where it's difficult to tell what's going on everywhere from, you know, you can't do this in one viewpoint, but as you start to build all these different observatories, then you think of the statistical processes going on and smart people, a lot of ex-Bell Labs people actually have kind of gone out after the kind of Bell Labs have shrunk away 
gone out to research labs in other parts of the world, and they're still out there kind of producing these really clever things where they correlate things from different viewpoints. Uh, and, and again, really high performance, you know, I have a, uh, I mentioned the most, uh, you know, incredible respect for people that, you know, do kind of bit level timing and 100 gigabit networks. This is you know, heavy lifting. Um, and yeah, people are keeping up, you know, so I, mean, I was doing, you know, 128 kilobit measurements on an LSI 11, you know, um, uh, 1980. I guess that was not, it wasn't that hard, but it was sort of being precise about it was kind of tricky. But we were kind of lucky if we just captured those packets and kind of could say something about packet loss and, you know, round trip type variation and a few things. Um, whereas now people care about the uh, uh, literally, you know, the, the precise timing of the phase of transmission of packets from different senders and data centers, you know, really, really clever stuff. So, so I think when I look at the work out there, it's, um, you know, it really has the standard is really impressive. And, and it's, it's really good because the people coming out of universities and research labs are doing work that uh, the reason I like measurement kind of behind your questions, you know, why was measurement? Well, because obviously it's true, right? You measure something properly and you report the statistics. And, and for, a, for a PhD student, grad student or researcher, it's really great because then you go to somebody from you know, industry, you say, this is true, there's some stuff, this is how your system is behaving. And this is what, you know, when you deploy quick, this is what it actually does for everyone's TCP traffic. Or, you know, when you push out this way of scheduling all the packet flows in a data center, this is what actually happens to the map reduced application. So those things are, uh, are great because you can have, uh, you can have an impact, you know, you can be useful. Uh, so I think this is really nice, but you have to be professional. Um, so there's the sort of level of work where you know where the um, uh, you have to learn a lot of a lot of skills, but then you, that, that's a good thing. You know, so. Yeah, it's interesting because I do think that early in the days of the internet, we started out with with very. I mean, when I remember when I first started working around networks, the the measurement was very rough and ready. It was like, yeah, you just do this, you do that, and you come up with some numbers and. Maybe you're right, maybe you're wrong. You try some experiments and see if it see if it changes. Um, kind of a manipulability theory of causality going on there. Whereas now we tend to have a lot more precision in what we're measuring. Uh, so yeah, I think that's I think that's pretty interesting. Just looking at how that has changed over the years uh, and how that's impacted the way we build and deploy protocols. Uh, in the internet. I still don't think we do a good job of measuring routing, by the way, routing convergence and, and anything in the routing. But understanding the controls plane is, is still very, I think that's part of the reason you see so many issues around, should we centralize with software-defined networks and controllers or should we do distributed? Because we honestly don't know the answer, right? We don't have yeah. measurements that yeah. help us understand what the implications are. I mean, I can rattle on about CAT theorem and all that stuff, but sure. that's all theoretical. That doesn't really help you necessarily understand exactly how it works. Um, no, I, I, that, that's absolutely right. I have a colleague here in, in, in the department, Tim Griffin, who was at Bell Labs, and he was actually working on something completely different. He was working on databases, and somebody came along whenever it was 15 years ago and said, we have this weird protocol called BGP and we don't understand what it does. And he, he worked with a bunch of people, I guess, Jennifer Rex, who's now Princeton, a bunch of clever people. And, and we still don't understand what it does, but he, he then came up with 
an algebraic replacement because then he could actually specify what it should do and he's still fighting to kind of push that out there um, and he did, there's a bunch of clever papers that are just part of the problem space but you know they're just tackling some of the difficult corner cases but actually I think the, yeah, you, you'd like to just know what the regular behavior is, you know, just the routine behavior of, of, of yeah, I think that's absolutely right. And maybe there's something about the distributed computation that is a routing algorithm where it's not simply observing a collection of traffic flows where we can do statistical processes to figure out, you know, to estimate more and more accurately what the, all the flow behaviors is. It's how do you infer, yeah, when you mentioned CAP, I mean, you know, how do you infer what the stage an algorithm is at in, in some diffusing computation or whatever's going on. That's a, that's a really nice, that's kind of like, uh, that's still a challenge where back in the day we had this challenge of trying to measure a day in the life of the internet. I think this was a grand challenge. The National Science Foundation was saying, you know, we would like a future internet, but before we have that, let's just say what the internet does for a whole day precisely. And I think people did a lot of the measurement work from that, but actually they were looking at you know, TCP flows and other traffic sources, you know, uh, RTP, UDP, video, live streaming, all of those different things. And we've kind of gone a long way with that. But then, yeah, we're missing, we're missing that, what's going on in the control planes. Is, yeah. you know, is that a question because the vendors aren't interested in giving users insight into that? I, I mean, it's, it, you know, as a Cisco or a Juniper, why would they give you the ability to get that level of detail? Because then you can start making rational decisions about what's going on and choose vendor A over vendor B. Yeah. Yeah. I, I also think it's just hard to measure. Like people don't even understand how these things work. I mean, it, when it, I, it's hard to measure because you, there is no way to measure is what right. I, was, I was really trying to say. And Cisco has, or Juniper or Huawei or Arista have no impetuous to give you sure. that data. Why would they give you that the ability to get that data? What do they get out of it? Right. I mean, the thing is, you, you need to observe what's unobservable. So you can't just observe the packets because one of, I mean, a very simple example is, is that you have all kinds of damping in root computation. So if you get a, in a path vector algorithm, you get some updates and you don't send the next stage of the computation out to the next, you know, to the, the, the neighbors immediately. Uh, because you're trying to stop, you know, reflaps, or you're trying to, you know, damp out uh, fluctuations, but you don't know how somebody implements that, and so that's hidden, and that's not hidden in a way that's just it's because it's far away. It's actually in the software, and um, and so of course you you could run maybe uh, you know some open source uh, you know BGP or whatever, but but you're unlikely to do that in a in a big ISP. And then, yeah, that's going to occur all over the place. So I think there's an interesting, yeah, there's an interesting what, what could be observed without actually instrumenting the implementation, which is very different than just watching the wire. Um, right, yeah. Black yeah. box measurements are notoriously difficult. There's some work going on. There has been work going on in the ITF for years about this, but it's just, there's almost no way of knowing mm -hmm. for certain why things. You're trying to infer reasoning um, and and the person who wrote the code may not even know the reasoning. They just saw something happen once in some large network and went, "Oh, that doesn't work." So let's do something different. And so yeah. they go do it. And like you're just like, "Well, what, how does that work in other networks?" I don't know. Right. You know. 
it's kind of strange. Yeah, well, that's kind of that's kind of a useful thing to come out of this conversation. So I know I can go and talk to my my colleague Tim Griffin, and we can say, okay, <laughs> let's figure out is there an approach to that? Uh, you know, he he was trying to leapfrog that by just creating a new way of tackling the uh, 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 policy rooted problem. But actually, there's without the policies, there's just what's going on. Um, yeah. Um, we have, yeah, there's some work actually, weirdly, um, there's some work in interpretable AI. Um, there's a DARPA program now at the moment, which is explainable AI. And that AI is much harder. So maybe we, sh- we should take what those folks do and see if we can apply it to the black box that is, you know, Dijkstra with delays or, you know, Postvector right. or whatever. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, or at least get some of those smart people to say, hey, there's this problem over here, you know, ignore the deep learning stuff. That's just telling you whether it's a cat or a dog. What we want right now is to tell us why we can't reach this site. Uh, that would be useful. <laughs> we'll pay you lots more money. Well, probably not. Probably they get paid more by, by deep mind, maybe. I don't know. Yeah, there's a lot more research money in that right now. Yeah. Yeah. So... All right. Well, thanks, John, for coming on. This has been a very interesting conversation. Is there any place where people can follow your work? Um, just, you know, I know you're out on ACM, by the way, for those listening. This uh, this actual connection was made by ACM, who is going to be publishing some of these interviews uh, for the issue of networking in the ACM library. And if you're not a member of the ACM, you should be. By the way, I'll just say that. I've been for years, and the resources out there are really good. Uh, in that area. So anyway, um, is there any place where people can follow your work, John, where they can get, you know, find out what you're working on or get in touch with you if they have questions or? Uh, I'm fine with people just emailing me, you know, I get like 400 emails a day and I kind of try and answer all the ones that aren't actually crazy. Um, And, you know, (laughs) So my, send my, not crazy emails. <laughs> and, well, actually, I have this thing I should say that if somebody wants to study with me, then I have a web page that says, you want to come study here, you have to put uh, Pride and Prejudice and Zombies at the bottom of your email, uh, which, is, <laughs> you know, which is like one of the worst films and books ever made, except there are a lot worse things. And, you know, a few people do, and I really pay attention to them because they actually read down to that bottom of that page. So now I'm going to get loads of those. I have to change that now. So. <laughs> That's cool. Good. And Donald, you're at me, not you, sharp, right? On Twitter? Yeah, Did I yeah. say that right? I don't no, it's know. close enough. Close <laughs> enough, yeah. People will find you if they want to. Exactly. And I'm Russ White. You can always find me at Rule 11 at Tech. And thanks for joining us for this um, history of networking. Yeah, thanks, thanks for coming on. for coming on. Thank you. Bye.